are listening to the Star Lores Podcast. I find your lack of faith disturbing. Why you stuck up, half-witted, scruffy-looking nerf herder? Toshi Station to pick up some power converters. I got a bad feeling about this. For a millennia, the Republic was at peace. The last great conflagration had been long forgotten under San. The Sith have gone into hiding thought extinct. There's the odd flare-up of unrest, a planetary revolution here, an armed struggle between natives and settlers there, but conflict is largely localized and ends quickly thanks to the hard work of Jedi peacekeeping and negotiations. The Republic, led by Chancellor Tarsus Valorum, passes the Rusan reformations. The Republic is to officially decommission its armies the Jedi are to surrender all military ranks. Do you realize the ramifications of what you are asking, Tarsus? Your proposals called for the Jedi to renounce the military ranks and completely disband all our military, naval, and starfighter forces. You are asking us to destroy the Army of Light. Quote, Valentine Farfalla The reformations were not a complete demilitarization, however. Only the responsibility for defense was shifted to planetary governments. Some chose not to bother, while others maintained a standing force. Some simply kept a small cadre of militarized police and guards. Whatever a world's choice, with a lack of galactic-level threats, it was thought there would be no need for a military. And for the great peace of the Republic, for 1,000 years, it was so. Until the rise of the Confederacy of Independent Systems. The Separatist movement threatened to rend the galaxy in half. And its sudden volatile appearance caught the decadent Republic flat-footed. As fate, or other forces, would have it, however, a fortunate discovery would come to the Republic's aid as war with the Confederacy seemed inevitable. On the hidden world of Camino, a standing military had already been raised, equipped, and stood ready to defend the Republic. Origins Sifo Diaz, unwittingly manipulated by a wealthy benefactor and secret Sith Lord, placed an order for an army of clones. The Kaminoans were renowned for their mastery over genetics and cloning technology, for a premium cost. Sifo Diaz, sensing that the peace of the Republic would not last forever, commissioned the army, expecting an exemplary product from an exemplary producer. The army would be more than just personnel. Armor, equipment, vehicles would all either be purpose-built or outsourced to other production lines to put together everything a military could need. From the smallest ration pack to the acclimator-class starship, to move men and material, 
the task that would take years to fulfill. Ten years before the outbreak of the war, when the Sith menace had been revealed on Naboo, production began. The Template An army of clones would require a template from whom to copy their genetic material. With a monumental fiscal investment already placed behind the project, they would have to find a genetic donor worthy of the task ahead, not only as suitable candidates for the war, but to carry out a more insidious task in establishing an empire after the war and annihilating a particular foe. Although Diaz placed the order for the Republic, the financing and ultimate decision-making power came from Higo Damask. The wealthy investor and secret Sith Lord, Darth Plagius. Damask commissioned his apprentice, Darth Sidious, better known as Senator Palpatine, who himself turned around and relegated the task to his own acolyte, Darth Tyrannus, a.k.a. Count Dooku, after Sidious killed his master. Dooku was quick to his task, and although a series of investigations, tests, and interrogations, he had found the perfect candidate to serve as the template for the clone army, then known for his dangerous reputation and the deadliest bounty hunter in the galaxy, Jango Fett, the last of the true Mandalorians, was chosen for the task. Aside from his considerable combat skills and experience, his fearlessness and ability to get any job done, there was one trait in particular that interested the Sith benefactors. The clone army, above all other purposes, had one task it had to accomplish, the annihilation of the Jedi Order. While cloning powerful force sensitives would have been ideal, cloning technology could not replicate force users without fatal or dangerous consequences. Therefore, a second option would have to be chosen. Someone who would be able to defeat the Jedi without relying on the power of the Force. The moment that sealed the fate of the galaxy happened many years ago on the planet Galadran, where a handful of true Mandalorian mercenaries would kill dozens of Jedi, and of whom only Jango Fett would survive. Dooku, having witnessed the warrior in action firsthand on the planet, knew that the bounty hunter would serve his purpose, and, in a poetic twist of fate, it would be a scion of the Mandalorians' ancient enemies of the Jedi allies of the Sith that would bring about the ultimate destruction of the Jedi. Aside from the considerable financial compensation that he was offered, Jango Fett also made a personal request to finalize the deal. Jango had asked for a cloned son of his own, unaltered, that he would raise himself. Some thought the request was a vanity project. Jango Fett, the most infamous bounty hunter, wanting an exact copy of himself as narcissistic, arrogant testament of his own greatness. And they would be wrong. As anyone that understood Mandalorian culture and Jango Fett's personal history, they would have understood that, 
to a Mandalorian, family, and everything. And further, the personal traumas and tragedies that made Jango Fett the man he was. The death of his biological family, the betrayal of his adopted father, and the loss of all his true Mandalorian brothers in arms left the man bereft of a legacy. A family to carry on, not just his own personal line, but all his teachings. The essence of a culture and a people almost extinct. A way to honor his past and provide a future. He also used the clone army as an avenue to avenge his fallen comrades, slain at the hands of the Jedi. Django would also act as an advisor, instructor, and cultural beacon for his Mandalorian heritage amongst the ranks of clone soldiers. Django Fett would also contract a cadre of training instructors to help him train the army. Handpicked, he would summon 100 instructors, 75 of which were Mandalorians, to come to Kamino to live and train the clone troopers. These contractors would come to be known as the Koi Valdar, or those who no longer exist in the Mandalorian tongue. Their accommodations would be fixed, their pay substantial, but they would disappear from the face of the galaxy in order to keep the secrecy of the clone army. For ten years they would vanish, leaving behind their old lives until their contracts were up. These hand-picked warriors would bestow special combat skills that only experience could bring to the new army. Many would also imprint part of their own culture and personal traits on the soldiers they would teach, adding some level of variation amongst the ranks of otherwise identical clones. Ruthless Upbringing The Kaminoans would create the first batch of clone prototypes before launching into full-scale production. These numbered only six and were an initial attempt to enhance the FET genome. As they were pre-production models, as the Kaminoans saw it, they were called nulls instead of being given a batch and production number, as later clones would receive. One of the stipulations of the contract for the army was that the soldiers would be loyal to a fault, able and willing to follow the most extreme orders. To that end, the Nulls were considered a failure by the Kaminoans, as a batch of clones proved to be unruly and far too independent, much like their genetic benefactor. As children, they rebelled against the harsh strictures of the clone training regime, and even took on entire barracks wing hostage as children. Slated for termination, the six clones were saved by a Mandalorian named Kalskirata, one of Django's Fett's trainers, who adopted them and brought them up with the strong Mandalorian instincts. They would go on to serve the Grand Army as part of a special operations group. The failure of the Nulls taught the Kaminoans much about the work ahead, and they began to get to work on stabilizing the genetic template to create more disciplined and less independent, instilling a superior sense of loyalty. They did, however, see the military benefits that an elite team of free-thinking clones could achieve through the Nulls, and added various special iterations of clones to the roster that would not be genetically tampered with or tampering would be kept to a minimum. 
These special clones would become the Alpha Advanced Recon Commandos, or Alpha Class Arc Troopers, and the Clone Commando Special Units. The Kaminoans would also experiment with the various other enhancements, creating a mix of one-off or highly specialized clones that had more extreme modifications and outcomes. Those that failed to achieve the cloner's stringent outcome criteria were summarily put to death, though these, this practice was somewhat curved when the Jedi would later become more involved in the clone training process. Further to this, all clones were implanted with a special biological brain modification that came with a complement of special orders based on extreme contingencies, such as if the Chancellor went rogue or if the Jedi attempted a coup. These special brain chips could be activated and the clone soldier would lose total autonomy, following the strictures of the pre-programmed behavior regardless of the clone's individual experiences or relationships. In order to meet the timeline of their production quotas, just 10 years, the Kaminoans accelerated the aging process of their clone troopers so that they would reach full physical maturity within the time frame. The training. Bred to be soldiers, trained to be warriors, the Grand Army of the Republic would be one of the greatest fighting forces ever created. From birth, they were examined for defects and assigned to their roles. Some would be marked for leadership, others special duty. Some were engineered specifically to accomplish certain tasks. Soon after a clone was born, or rather decanted, from his cloning vat, he would receive a number designation and would be placed into a role within the vast military hierarchy, or be otherwise assigned a specialized role as one of the many supporters for the military. They would be immediately inducted into their military units, bonding with their genetic brothers, both in the traditional and military sense. They would be introduced into training, discipline, and hierarchy. As children, they would undergo flash training, learning everything about their weapons and armor, tactics to their ships and equipment, and anything about their particular assigned rules. Clones would eventually graduate to simulated exercises and then onto full-scale live fire, training, and mock combat inside the stilt cities of Tipoca City. All this was done under the watchful, steely gaze of their Kaminoan handlers. Aberrancies were quickly and ruthlessly expunged. These child soldiers would live in a barracks in sterile conditions with minimal personal time or personal effects. Clones would receive practical instruction by the Koi Valdar. Clones would also adopt cultural teachings from their trainers and adopted a range of personal variances learned from their instructors, from accents to cultural teachings. Many of the clones adopted and acknowledged some form of Mandalorian inheritance from battle honors and naming conventions to battle hymns to enhance their esprit de corps. Others would adopt personality traits and preferred tactics and battlefield priorities to reflect their instructor's personality. 
The instructors varied in how they taught. Some ruthlessness was transposed onto their clones' charges who adopted aggressiveness and merciless traits. Others were scarred by the severity and manner of their instructions, suffering from PTSD and struggling to emotionally regulate. To the Kaminoans, the clone soldiers were not people, but a product. As perfectionists, they would hold their products to the highest level of scrutiny and would not tolerate aberrations. They prioritized uniformity and cohesion and would destroy any product, any person that fell short of their exacting standards. Deployment. Though the clone army had its own internal structure, made up of clones from frontline ranks all the way to commanders, the army would be led by the Jedi. Upon adoption of the army by the Senate, the Jedi were inducted as commanders and generals over the subordinate clones. Initially, this had proven to be a disastrous decision, as the clones engaged on their first deployment on the planet of Geonosis. Taking a fleet and considerable interdiction force, Grandmaster Yoda of the Jedi Order, now High General, ordered a rescue operation of some 200 Jedi that had been sent on their own rescue mission, instigating the first battle of the years-long Clone Wars. The Jedi, long out of practice in the arena of war-making, proved to be considerable warriors but ineffectual battlefield commanders. Lacking formal training, the Jedi would lead their troops on headlong attacks into the enemy fire, while they did their best to mitigate their losses by leading the attacks directly and deflecting oncoming fire as best as they could, their tactics and overall strategies proved less than effective, relying on the superior training and prowess of their clones to carry the day, despite heavy casualties. The Jedi had even deployed special commando units in horrific strategic blunders that resulted in many of them being wiped out. Jedi Padawans, some barely teenagers, were appointed as battlefield commanders, of their clone subordinates with varying outcomes. The clones, for their part, bred to follow orders, did not resist these appointments, nor challenge their superiors even when presented with bad battle strategies. However, as the Jedi learned, and allowed autonomy amongst their clones, they would begin sharing information and taking the advice of their clone compatriots. Relationships. After the war commenced and the Jedi took over as commanding officers, they would become more involved with all aspects of the clone troopers' lives. They would begin to oversee training and curb the Kaminoans' more strict impulses, notably saving the lives of aberrant clones and putting them to use as maintenance and support staff. These clones, working closest with the Jedi, would begin to adopt more extreme individual identities and personalities. They would observe less stringent regulations in dress and deportment and begin individualizing their armor, as most Jedi saw the clones as humans and encouraged more independence in their subordinates, though there were also many exceptions. 
Clone trooper opinions varied greatly on their Jedi superiors. Some grew very close with their commanders as friends and comrades, and even some lovers. Others, however, resented the Jedi for their lack of battlefield effectiveness as leaders and their philosophical hypocrisy. Clones lived largely separate from civilian populations, being owned and bred for war. They had little use for civilian engagement beyond those selected for police actions and crowd control. Their lives belonged to their duty, to the Republic, and to warfare. They would spend all their free time in the company of their brothers. The military and their family were one. Despite this, there were some clones, rare exceptions at first, who deserted or defected from the military. After being exposed to the wider galaxy and their formative sheltered years, seduced by dreams and passions outside of the purpose that they were produced, and their individuality unlocked by their unique experiences with the Jedi on a thousand worlds. Some stowed away and even married to civilian life. Some found love outside of warfare and even went on to reproduce children of their own. The Grand Army was far from the Republic's only fighting force. Although the government had long disbanded its military, many planet systems and sectors retained some form of police or defense force, although the clones would do the lion's share of heavy lifting. Theirs were still not enough to contest the quintillions of battle droids and resources the Separatists could muster. The Republic would come to rely on the various defensive forces to fend off the CIS, and the clones would often act as advisors and trainers to these military and paramilitary groups. By the same token, many worlds that joined the Separatists would rely on their own forms of non-droid planetary militaries and generals. Regular humans were also recruited to serve in the Grand Army fleet in various support and staff officer roles, working alongside and leading clones. Composition the Grand Army was organized in a relatively standard structure for most militaries. Eight-man squads were led by sergeants, who formed platoons led by lieutenants, companies by captains and various forms of commanders for battalions, regiments, legions, and corps. The largest subunit was the Systems Army led by a Jedi High General, a sitting member of the Jedi High Council, and the Army of, Hol of the Hole's Commander-in-Chief was the Chancellor of the Republic. There were also lateral special forces groups within the structure who were all headed by a Jedi Master. The army wore white-colored blast armor, with ranks being denoted by colored stripes and dots on the chest plate. Sergeants wore green, lieutenants blue, captains red, and commanders and pilots wore yellow. This uniformity in structure would change as the war went on, and clones would begin to mark their armor uniquely, based on legion affiliation, and even individualized to a clone's personal combat preferences and battlefield honors, such as adopting the Mandalorian J-Guys. As casualties would be replaced, newer clones with their pristine white armor would be called Shinies, and be expected to earn their colors in the Crucible of Combat. 
Clones would also be organized into numerous special units and wore unique armor to better suit their functions or purpose. From aquatic scuba troopers to Katarn-class armored commandos, black-clad stealth troopers, and Kama and pauldron-wearing arc troopers. Clones serving aboard capital ships and command roles would sometimes forego armor altogether, wearing sharp gray dress uniforms. Far from the only soldiers on the battlefield, the clone troopers proved to be the most consistently reliable, with the basic infantryman punching far above his weight against superior droid numbers and against even elite enemy troops. Their loyalty to the Republic was unquestioned, and that loyalty would be weaponized against them in the future. Thanks for flying with us. Jordan here. Just wanted to let everyone know what's happening here at the Star Lords podcast. Star Lords is now on Discord. If you would like to join the Star Lords Cantina Discord server, you can find a link in the description or on any of our social media accounts. Reach out with a DM or email. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching the Star Lores podcast. Go ahead and give our page a like and send us a message. You can also email at starlorespodcast at gmail.com. Send us your fan art, Star Wars collections, or fan fictions, and you may even get a feature on one of our pages or even the show. Don't be afraid to offer corrections or add to any of the topics that we discuss on the show. We are also on Patreon. So if you want to help us pay the bills, as well as get a few awesome perks like bonus episodes, access to the private Facebook group, or the VIP section of the Discord server, head on over to patreon.com forward slash starlores and sign up for as little as one US dollar a month. And finally, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcatcher app or YouTube, as well as sending us a five-star review on iTunes. This really helps us reach a wider audience. Enjoy the rest of the show. Everybody, welcome aboard the Millennial Falcon. This is Christian. And this is Jordan. And today we're going to do things a little bit different. We're going to start off today's uh, discussion portion with a little bit of a confession. This episode was supposed to be about the Stormtrooper Corps. Uh, but when I noticed that this is episode 66... I had to jump the gun a little bit and switch up some episodes, and we had to talk about the Grand Army of the Republic. <laughs> I thought it was just fitting. Um, Execute order nope. 60. <laughs> You're going to trigger all the clones out there, and they're going to start gunning down I, I Jedi. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, so just for clarity's sake, I know a lot of the preceding episodes are talking about the Death Star, Tarkin, like we're talking about the Empire, and it was going to be Stormtrooper Core. The other thing is that kind of makes sense is clone troopers are the predecessors of the clone troopers or the stormtroopers stormtroopers yeah so it makes sense that we talk about them first also so just in a linear f format that also makes sense as well yeah um we will get to stormtroopers yeah and we will i'm excited <laughs> some might say i started this whole podcast just to talk about this episode <laughs> and to talk about clone troopers this is now the clone trooper podcast for the next 25 episodes where we will <laughs> talk about individual clones no i'm just kidding but <laughs> 
I love clone troopers. I love the Grand Army of the Republic. There will be a part two to this episode. There is a lot to cover with the Grand Army of the Republic. So we just wanted to build like a foundations episode. But there's a lot more to come on the clone trooper front and the Clone Wars in general. But uh, yeah, let's get let's get into the discussion here. Um, to start off, let's talk about the demilitarization strategy that the Republic implemented. So prior to episode one, a thousand years prior to episode one, we had a lot of conflict, a lot of warfare. We've discussed some of this in some of our previous episodes. Um, the Jedi are very heavily involved in a lot of those early wars and the Sith. You have Sith em- whole Sith empires and Jedi fighting each other. They drag the rest of the galaxy into conflict. Um, post the, I believe it's the Jedi and Sith wars. All the wars also start to blend together after a time. Yeah. Um, but when you had the Brotherhood of Darkness fight against the Army of Light, it was kind of the last major conflict. This is where the Sith are, for all intents and purposes, exterminated. This is where Darth Bane goes into hiding and starts the rule of two, and the Sith go from being like a regularly occurring galactic level threat to this hidden menace that kind of like works behind the scenes for over a thousand years. Yeah. And because of this era of peace, the Republic demilitarizes, and it's called the Rusan Reformations. Uh, and we see that actually happen in real life a couple of instances. Um, currently, Panama has no standing military. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Um, but they also have, I believe they had last had a, like a very bad dictator. Okay. And so after the, he was deposed by Americans, yeah. um, <laughs> they decided to disband the military. Pers- well, I mean, I've... Let's all be real. America is Panama's military. So that's so. There's two. That's that's what I was going to get into about this. So in the world today, it's easy to say like if everyone just demilitarizes, then there will be no war. However, (laughs) the problem is when you try to convince everyone else to demilitarize before you. Yeah, yeah. Um. So when you have a country like Panama, that's a very unique case, and they're very important for trade because of the Panama Panama Canal. Canal. Yeah. So exactly. So it's in everyone's best interests supposedly that America acts as a de facto military. They know that if anyone ever challenged them, then the Americans would step in for the sake of nothing else to protect the canal. And, and uh, again, another history lesson here, but like post Bretton Woods agreement uh, in world war during world war two, basically America said they were going to protect international waters and trade routes among international waters. So I mean, that's sort of America's like pledge to the world. How long that lasts, I don't know. It seems to whether be- or not it's a reasonable <laughs> yeah. ask to begin with yeah. is also a question. <laughs> but uh, but they have been doing it somewhat all right for the last you know eighty seventy eighty years. But yeah, yeah like Panama would be probably fall under under those that auspices. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the other thing people don't totally know, and this also comes into the other country that's supposedly demilitarized, is Japan. Um, who technically has no expeditionary forces. But with both cases, um, when you dig into it a little more, you realize that Panama has a very heavily militarized police force, Ah, which comes with its own questions, as does Japan has a very militarized defense force. Right, yeah. That, you know, rivals other militaries. Also, Japan has this year actually have been like 
dramatically increasing their defense expedition. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's that. that, that it was that very controversial too when they were pushing that. Yeah, internally to Japanese politics because for so long they had been demilitarized, and that comes from their defeat at World War Two. Um, but I think they're scared of China. Yeah, and that's is, why they're yeah. kind of like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna do this. But and America will let them do it. So yeah, there'll be another speed bump. Yeah. Um, but again, this goes back to like, even though on paper these nations, for all intents and purposes, don't have quote unquote standing militaries, but they do have very militarized forces. Yeah. They it's still spend a, money. Yeah, sort of a workaround. Yeah, exactly, and it becomes especially questionable. So typically. With militaries and police forces, they serve very distinctive functions. Militaries are for external threats. And yeah. there's a lot of questions whenever they get deployed internally to a country. It's always kind of yeah. Um, yeah. questionable, right, when you use your own military against your own citizens. For anything other than natural disasters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. It becomes highly controversial. Yeah. And you typically wouldn't have be sending your police forces to fight external threats. Police forces are for internal disputes. And, you know, again, the idealized police force wouldn't be just going around like ruling by force and fear. That's not what police are for. Yeah. Um, Whatever your thoughts on police use of violence and stuff. However, it should become everyone's concern when you mix the groups of police and military and make them one force that can act Right. In both yeah, capacities. Yeah, yeah. So there should be like a, distinction, a, a clear distinction yeah, between the roles and functions. Of, yeah. And so that just raises questions <clears throat> around whenever you're like, oh, cool, we don't have a military, but we have a highly militarized police force. Yeah. How yeah. that can be. Do you really want that? Exactly. Yeah. Is that is that better? Yeah. Um, yeah, it makes sense. Okay. And another very notable group that, well, nation state that has been demilitarized in the past was. Germany, Germany. <laughs> post World War One, yeah. as one of their punishments for uh, not even starting the war, <laughs> and so obviously that was a, a huge piece of German rearmament and triggering, you know, precedents for World War Two. Yeah. Um. All that to say, we've had demilitarized nation states in the past. They have existed. And Star Wars kind of reflects that in the yeah. Republic demilitarizing, decommissioning its standing forces. And just like real life countries, even though the Republic didn't have a standing military it controlled, independent worlds were still free to have like security, security forces, forces police yeah. forces. Yeah. They would do like anti-piracy work or if there were disputes interplanetary or intersystem disputes, they could fight that out. It, it is kind of hard to imagine though that like they would actually demilitarize like a galactic power yeah <laughs> that's like that's that's risk, and, risky business and some people warned even within the universe like Uh-oh. hey you probably shouldn't do this and yeah but there was peace for a thousand years yeah <laughs> in a fictional universe yeah. yes so they did manage <laughs> to make true. it work because the writers <laughs> made, it <laughs> made it work yeah and there are questions about like would it lead to more or less conflict if you have a bunch of smaller forces, less decentralized forces running around, like if everyone's got a private military? Yeah. There, there's a lot of cool directions you could take it, and I'm not saying they're wrong or any one. We don't... There's all kinds of precedents in human history for that, right? You yeah. have, like, lots of mini wars fought in, like, the medieval periods when you have all these lords that have their own private militaries. But also yeah. you have, like, other considerations in the modern context. So the, the nation state is a very new 
phenomenon. Yeah. Countries is. as they are haven't really existed for that long compared to most of human history. Yeah, the way we conceive them. It's yeah. A, roughly 500 years or so yeah which like is that. very short compared yeah. to the vast it's like 10 minutes <laughs> in, in human, human history, history yeah right? exactly yeah. so there's a lot of unknowns and variables whenever you talk about you know escalation armament dearmament, private militaries right if yeah. everyone just commissioned out their militaries to be private contractors would that increase or decrease the amount of warfare if anyone plays or has played the metal gear franchise they talk <laughs> a lot about that Huge fan, by the way. Side note. <laughs> Anyways, kind of got way off track there. Um, but yeah, just some, again, historical examples that kind of reflect the Republic as it de-arms. Yeah. And we realize a thousand years later with Sifo Diaz kind of thinking like, well, things might not be peaceful forever. We should maybe consider having a backup strategy. And then as we spoke in both this episode and the Sifo Diaz episode, they commissioned a military kind of behind the scenes. Yeah, at the behest of the Sith, because the Sith actually are gonna take that central control and use it ultimately to their own ends. Yeah. Um, kind of switching gears a little bit. Inhibitor chips. I didn't call them that in the episode, but that's what the uh, brain modification is in all clone troopers is the inhibitor chip, which is a f- relatively new addition to the Clone Wars series. Um, I mean, going back through the Legends contact, it was re- content. It was relatively new, and it. I don't know if it's highly disputed, but I know I really hated the concept of inhibitor chips. Um. So for anyone who doesn't know or hasn't seen the show, inhibitor chips essentially are pre-programmed chips that are installed in all these clone brains, so that when they hear Order sixty six, it triggers and overrides the clone's personality and free will, and forces them to essentially the Jedi are traitors to the Republic and to exterminate them. Yeah. First of all, not a lot of people know this is that there were other contingency orders, order 66, obviously indicating there were at least 65 other orders. One of which was also the reverse. If Palpatine went rogue, um, okay. It would be triggered where they would arrest the chancellor. Okay. So, and there were all all other loyalists. Yeah, exactly. All other kind of variables and, and other contingencies for someone going rogue or something really going sideways. Uh, that's the first thing that a lot of people don't realize, but it's there. Yeah. However, the Sith did early on intervene and made order 66 very like prominent trigger word. Um, (coughs) so the thing I hate about it the most first and foremost is that Lucas had already accounted for clone troopers. Um, following orders to a fault that was already kind of like an aspect from the very beginning one of the Kaminoans quotes is that they're made more to follow orders they're loyal at a genetic level yeah and that that is already the foreshadowing for what's to happen in episode three they mentioned that in episode two when we're first introduced to the clone army um so one it was an unnecessary change and two it kind of robs from the tragedy of clones who are always distinguished, like in some ways they're parallels to the droids. They're like, you know, machines made for war, but are really people, you know, it's this whole kind of poetic soldiers are humans too kind of thing. Yeah. But at the same time, it robs them of their agency when, you know, you could have had some really cool stories where a clone's duty conflicts with what they want. And it's a, it's a very real thing. If anyone who served in the military, if you're ever in a situation where like your duty and your 
your duty and what you think is right might conflict. Um, and it could have been, it could have made for very powerful stories of clones that did follow orders, even though they didn't want to. And very tra- like a very tragic story. Like, yeah, the, the Jedi are to their, in their point of view, are traitors and we're just doing our duty. Yeah. And I do think also, I, I, I kind of agree with you. Like, seems like an unnecessary sort of plot point to introduce uh i mean you could just sort of say that by the by the time order 66 was executed that all these sort of like more individualistic clones probably wouldn't have even been clones anymore would have defected already or something like to that effect and any who are still like in uniform yeah were still loyal enough to follow the order yeah to follow the order yeah yeah exactly you could you could have told this story with so much more personal weight yeah yeah and it's just robbed by <laughs> chip takes over brain now yeah. i do and like so even, well like why'd they include they're so worried it would the appear. whole reason i suspect <laughs> the whole so it was included in the clone wars tv series and i suspect the whole reason it was done was really to salvage the honor of these clone trooper characters that they'd created like captain rex oh I so see. they made these yeah. like fan favorite clone troopers who they didn't want to they didn't want to tarnish yeah. their reputations <laughs> after they commit order 66 so if they just robbed them of their agency and be like look they had no control which even rex like is is crying while he's like turning his guns on on ahsoka um because it's like his body is almost acting outside of his mental faculties. Yeah. And I just, I hate that so much because it's like how much more heart rending would it be if he's choosing to do that yeah. rather than being forced or choosing not to do it. And you could tell that whole other story. Yeah, yeah. It, right. Like it, it, you could take it so many directions and it's yeah. just, all those stories are just robbed by brain chip. Make me bad. Yeah. And I, yeah, I agree. And you could have like it's a some, bit of kind of plot. Armor, yeah. And you I could guess. have sympathetic clone characters who commit, you know, this, this act and like you still want to like them but now they have this tarnished reputation right they don't have like your heroes don't have to be like completely unblemished yeah it could no. be something rex carries with them for the rest of his life you know yeah so there's so many like i said so many ways they could have done it and i when that came out there's two things that i i love the clone wars series i love Kennedy tarkovsky's clone Wars series too yeah um and I like the new stuff that they put out with Dave Filoni. And I'm, I am a big Dave Filoni fan. And even like he made me like Ahsoka. Ahsoka yeah. went from one of my most hated characters to <laughs> one of my most loved characters. And I credit him for that. <laughs> but the two biggest missteps of the Clone Wars series is I believe how they treated Mandalorians, at least early on with the whole pacifist faction and the brain chip clone troopers. They're the two absolute <laughs> worst things that have come from the Clone Wars series. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that's my two cents. I agree. I tend to agree with you there. It's, yeah. Um, it's a bit too plot armory for me. Yeah, and, and again, yeah. I think it was all done just to protect the reputation yeah, of clone yeah. characters who would have been cool anyways. And yeah. it could have been made even cooler having to grapple with this this thing. So that's my inhibitor chip rant off my <laughs> chest. I've been holding on to it for a long time and <laughs> it's eaten me up inside and now I'm glad to air it finally. Yeah. Make um, sure you guys let us know what you think of the inhibitor chip. Yeah comments yeah and if it's something you didn't even consider and you're like oh yeah hey maybe they robbed us of something there it only only message if you agree with me (laughs) just kidding i want to hear all your opinions hey and if you disagree too actually i'd be curious to hear an argument in favor of the other side um that kind of feeds into our next point here about clones and nature versus nurture um it's really interesting to see clones are they a blank slate (laughs) like if you ask the kaminoans yes yeah 
but in practical terms after you see them evolve and develop yeah they branch off into so many variations that does that justify the blank slate thing like were they just imprinted on is this a scenario where you have an individual replicated so many times that he's taken every every choice is kind of like what if you did this instead of that well there's a clone that did this and there's a clone that did that right so you see the various outcomes of the same thing um again i think it could have been a good question that they kind of delve into but they don't really they kind of skirt the edges of it um with the clone like i said with the clone the cloners the kaminoans early on they want everyone to be uniform and like task they're a product their only purpose is war and that's it's very kind of like one-dimensional and direct which i actually like as a concept too i'm not i'm not uh obviously not in a good way but i like the concept as a storytelling mechanism i'm not saying we should do that yeah. <laughs> i'm gonna get into the clones as products not people too um but as they go through first the first time we see them kind of like variances in the clones is by their trainers so the kuvaldar Ku, i can i don't know how to speak mandalorian but those that have dis, those that uh, disappeared 75 of them are Mandalorians and they really imprint imprint Mandalorian culture on a lot of the clone troopers. And some of them though, who are trained by other trainers don't have that and they don't have that Mandalorian connection. And then you also have like different clones who adopt different accents and speak differently to each other because of their trainers, which I mean, language is something that is not genetic. We know that you pick that up. You know, I could actually, in that kind of scenario, I could, that kind of makes sense. What, that they would have different accents? Well, because they don't really have much interaction with any culture yeah, outside, no, they, of, outside of what they're It would given. only be their trainers, right? Exactly. So it, it does make sense that they would sort of adopt have, the idioms and, and whatnot yeah. of their trainers, bringing and, in more like an outside influence. Exactly. Right? And, and whatever those unique traits or mannerisms that a trainer might have. Yeah. And so like, and you have a very sterile environment to practice this in, which isn't something yeah. in real life you really have. You have all these kind of social contaminants that you never yeah. know is it something when I raised my kid was it something that I taught him is it something he learned on his own or he picked up from a friend or something like that right yeah whereas in typical city it's very sterile it's like living in a laboratory yeah and they're brought up with very specific purpose and intent to be soldiers Um, but then yeah they pick up these traits and these little mannerisms things and also some trainers are more brutal than others so the Republic Commando series which is I I I really enjoyed it, but it's because I like clone troopers and I like Mandalorians, and that was a fusion of both. Yeah. A lot of fans aren't big fans of Karen Travis for other reasons we've mentioned before. But whatever your thoughts are, um, they do delve into kind of the upbringing aspect of it, and you have two Mandalorian trainers that are compared. You have one named Waylan Vow and one named Cal Scarata. Cal Scarata is a very like imprints his Mandalorian heritage and treats his clone charges as like sons. And they create like a really strong familial bond, whereas Vow is very brutal, and like his clones are very efficient, but not family oriented. They're not socially developed. They're, and one of them even suffers like almost PTSD from his upbringing, from like an abusive, essentially an abusive parent. Yeah, and that's another consideration: is these clone troopers are kids when they're being inducted into the military. They are child soldiers, and there's nothing mentioned about like. Yes, they're physically grown and matured in 10 years, but 
are their minds is their experiences having been brought up in such a plastic environment like when they're exposed to the galaxy at large they still have the naivety and innocence of a child other than for the again exposure to their trainer and whatever their trainer again being a brutal disciplinarian or a fatherly figure yeah um so those books do a good job of exploring that aspect i think it could have been done a lot more in other mediums again the clone wars really does like to pick out the clones as characters and individuals and that would have been a great avenue to explore that especially with how mainstream it is yeah so just some thoughts on like nature and nurture um you know and how many clones ended up like their father, like their genetic father, Django Fett, right? Yeah. How much of Django <clears throat> Fett's personality came out? You notice a lot of clones using dual wielding pistols. Is that a genetic trait? Is that something, you know, what, what elements of Django come through in all the different clones and the different variations, right? Yeah. So all interesting questions about the clone army. Um, touching i guess since we talked about it the clones as products instead of people um this is also a sore spot i've mentioned in the past about the jedi being hypocrites essentially enlisting an army of slave soldiers children no independence no autonomy imagine like these people are products they're slaves they were born for a purpose to die on a battlefield and that is their whole role and like what kind of thoughts maybe they put into what happens after the war what if the republic won what do they do with this army now do they decommission them do they is there any plan to transition them into civilian life if they're too wounded to carry on in a military capacity um now there are also questions on that front about if your purpose bred and built would you even want to leave the military would the clones if given the option be too dangerous to be put into in a civilian context maybe (laughs) Um, but and, and again, Do they need to be euthanized. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the the ethical option. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there there are a lot of ethical questions surrounding this and the Jedi that I, I've <clears throat> harped on before. So I'm not going to delve into it totally here, but just things to consider where you have Jedi who talk about you know life and freedom and and the Republic ostensibly fighting for freedom using clone soldiers no better than droids, right? Yeah. Um, and the ethics involved with those those questions. Um, on that front as well, there were clones that did defect um, without any kind of, I don't know what the word is. But what did they do with the inhibitor chips when they defect? So that's, if you, the way the Clone Wars series makes it seem, or the Bad Batch TV show after the fact takes that on, um, it seems like if you don't hear the order, it doesn't activate. You kind of have to hear it. Well, it makes sense. For it to activate. So yeah. if you've already deserted from the military and you're not like on a military broadcast you channel, comms, yeah. you'd, you'd probably be fine. Um, And there's at least one clone that you... There are other clone defectors in other series. Again, Republic Commando has, an, a, I believe, a clone arc trooper who defects. Um, But in, in the Clone Wars TV series, you actually have just a regular clone trooper who defects and he actually gets married and starts a family and lives a simple farming life. Yeah. And he comes up actually again later in the Bad Batch TV series. Spoilers, too late. But anyways, you do see what a clone could live like in a peaceful existence. But again, just because a clone doesn't mean all his brothers would be adapted the same way. Is a reason he defected and all his his brothers did not. Was he defective? Yeah. Which led to his eventual defection. 
um, in the Republic Commando series, it's implied that the the trooper that does defect is actually an ARC trooper. And ARC troopers are more more or less actual, just straight up copies of Django Fett. So they are more independent and independently minded. So any defectors on that front makes sense because ironically enough, Django Fett being like a lone wolf bounty hunter type, just speaking to his personality, yeah, he would he would not be actually an ideal frontline soldier <laughs> yeah. because he would have trouble taking orders from someone else. You know, he he would prioritize his own survival. They don't always make the best frontline troops. It it takes a certain certain type of personality. So arc troopers, their benefit is that they're independently minded. So on a mission, they can come up with an alternative strategy on the fly. But yeah, also problem solvers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But also the risk is they think too freely and yeah. they suddenly don't maybe agree with your war. They maybe don't agree with giving up their life. Maybe they can make more money as like a mercenary or something else. Right. Yeah. Now they're in it for themselves and they don't want to work for you anymore. So that's the. Uh, that's the interest, interesting duality of mm-hmm. Django Fett. Um, I mentioned it in the episode too, also just touching on Django Fett and his clones, Boba Fett, not being so much a project of pride, but more so an avenue to transfer his heritage and culture. Because you got to remember Django Fett is the last surviving member of the true Mandalorians. So he sees it, it as his duty, again, Mandalorian culture being family-driven and orientated to pass on all that knowledge and insight and information onto his son. It's later revealed that there are other Mandalorians and this is where you cross into legends and canon kind of mix of about whether like, even though he is the last true Mandalorian, there are other Mandalorians that still share culture and heritage. You have Kalskirata and Waylon Vau and all those other Mandalorians that disappeared who still live on the planet. And um, they're able to also, a lot of clones that do defect who have that Mandalorian upbringing end up back on their home on Mandalore and actually get adopted into Mandalorian clans because they have that shared history. Yeah. And that's a little bit of spoilers for later. We'll probably talk about it towards the end of the next clone episode. Um, but like I said, we will, we will come back and we'll revisit the grand army of the Republic. There's still so much more to talk about. Oh yeah. This is a super vast topic and there's been a lot of, uh, content made on it as yeah, well. Exactly. So. It, the whole Clone Wars project was a huge multimedia yeah. project. So, And there's all kinds of individual clone characters we're going to discuss and all that. So yeah. stay tuned for uh, future episodes on that front. Indeed. All right. Uh, you guys know what to do. Uh, reach out to us if you have questions, comments, uh, anything you want to contribute. Uh, we are on Discord, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can reach out to us there. If you want to support the show financially, help us pay the bills, uh, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Starlores, and for $3 a month, you can become a member. And thanks to all our current members um, for helping us pay them bills. Anyways, uh, that's all I have to say, Christian. That's it for me. Peace. <laughs>